Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, November the 2nd. This week, news from Beijing about the launch of the Lancet's Who Counts series. And we discuss sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS, pegged to a seminar in this week's issue of the Lancet dated November the 3rd to the 9th. Before that, a few other highlights from the issue. Obesity gets a lot of treatment this week. It's the subject of the lead editorial and a related comment. The editorial is in response to two recently published reports in the UK showing how the United Kingdom fares badly compared with other European countries. The editorial is calling at the government level for an apolitical and cross-departmental approach for properly tackling the obesity epidemic. And the comment by Andrew Jack of the Financial Times is deeply critical of the way the UK Department of Health goes about its public relations in relation to obesity. In research, we publish results of the Mozambique Children's Malaria Vaccine Trial, profiled in a podcast a couple of weeks ago when we published the study online on October the 16th. Also, we publish in research an article showing how drug-eluting stents this is a topical issue, are not cost-effective for all patients who could potentially benefit from stenting, though they are cost-effective certainly for a subset of high-risk individuals, such as those with small vessel size. Also look out for this week's special report about Aboriginal health. The peg for this is the upcoming Australian election on November the 25th. And some of you may remember a couple of years ago we published a series on Indigenous health which showed how Aboriginal people in Australia fare far worse than their white counterparts. But back to the main features. This week the Lancet launched online the Who Counts series in Beijing, China. To explain more, I spoke to one of the authors connected with the series, Carla Abuzar, and I began by asking her what she was doing in Beijing, China. We're at a meeting called the Global Forum for Health Research, which brings together researchers and funders of research in, in health from around the world to discuss strategic priorities, where the gaps are, and what the needs are in, in health research. And that is also the location for the official launch of the Lancet Who Counts series, which we publish on Tuesday, October the 30th. You've just been at that launch, Carla. How did it go? It was a very lively session. It was well attended, and we had some really wonderful presentations by the key authors of, of the papers. It was chaired by Richard Horton, the Lancet Editor-in-Chief, and we had some excellent audience participation with very pertinent questions, I would say quite demanding questions, about how to actually put these systems in place in uh, resource-poor settings and, and some of the pitfalls, but also some of the gains that would undoubtedly ensue if we had such systems in place. Thanks for that, Carla. And just rewinding a sec, I just want to, to give listeners a flavour for what we're talking about here with the Who Counts series. This is to do with vital registration. Can you just first of all define the problem that the Who Counts series is trying to address? Well, in, in a sense, the, the problem is encapsulated in the title because civil registration is uh, about registering people when they're born. It's giving them a birth certificate. It's noting their existence. And it's about registering deaths and the causes of those deaths. And the whole argument we're making is that it's really important for all countries to have in place systems for counting births, for counting deaths, and for counting the causes of death, because that's the basic information that any society needs for good governance, and it's the basic information that any society needs in order to be able to take sound health decisions. How many people do you have? 
how many are being born, how many are dying, especially prematurely, and what are the causes of those deaths. Our argument is that it's really important to count people. And counting people is a sign that people count, that they're important, that every single individual life matters and is important. So it's not just about getting the statistics. It's also about the individual rights that come with registration. Because unless you're registered and you exist as a, as a person, you're not able to uh, make any of your rights count. Your social, your uh, economic, uh, indeed your human rights. Who counts really has this double sense of it's important to count people because people count, people matter. Thank you. And what are you calling for, both at the international level and at the country level in order to improve the situation of making sure that people count? What we're saying in this, in this series is that if we had better data on births and deaths, we would have better policies and programs and better health as a result. So what we're calling for is a dual approach. Firstly, governments themselves need to take responsibility for this. It is a government responsibility to know how many people they govern and to have the systems in place to enable them to do that. But we're also calling on the international community, on donors and on development agencies, to pay more attention to this issue because it's been very sadly neglected for the past 40 years. If you look around the world, uh, there's been no progress in improving the coverage and the quality of civil registration systems for four decades. And, and that's a really disastrous situation to be in because it means we can't take, make sensible health policies. So both governments need to take responsibility and donors need to support them in doing that. And the $64 million question is, how likely is it? I mean, let's be realistic, and I suspect this question is, has been echoed in the discussion you just had at the launch from what you were saying earlier. And I'm particularly referring to the very poorest countries in the world. Academically, it's really straightforward, isn't it, to discuss vital registration? It seems obvious. But countries who have, you know, fragmented structures and societies minimal if no budgets at all how are they going to seriously tackle you know basically a very sort of pragmatic issue accounting type bureaucratic issue an important bureaucratic issue about vital registration are they really going to do something about it the argument we make in our papers is that no matter how difficult the situation is in a given country in terms of the current availability and the quality of these vital statistics we're arguing that there are things you can do today that will improve things in the short term. So although it is absolutely true to say that having a fully functional civil registration system such as we take for granted in the developed world, that's going to take many years to put in place in, in the most resource-constrained settings. But nonetheless, there are things they can do right away to improve the situation. And, and we have a number of interim solutions that, that we're proposing that can be applied in these settings. And one of the interesting things that came out of the discussion today was that, in fact, once you start putting these systems in place, you create a very positive feedback loop. You create the capacity and people you know, individuals and families themselves start to understand the advantages. And, and the system actually keeps itself going after a while. It becomes a positive feedback loop. So our argument is, you know, it won't take for, forever. 
because there is a stepwise approach that can be made to move in the right direction. And indeed, we have a number of tools and approaches that we're promoting and, and a resource kit of materials that will help countries to start along this route. Encouraging news. Carla Abuzar on the line from Beijing at the Global Forum for Health Research. Thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, is a topical issue both in medical journals and in the mainstream media. This week we publish a comprehensive seminar which brings together the latest thoughts about this condition. Earlier I spoke to one of the authors of the study, Dr. Rachel Moon from the George Washington University School of Medicine. And I began by asking her to define SIDS. Sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS, is defined as the sudden death of an infant under one year of age that is unexplained even after a thorough case investigation, which includes a complete autopsy, examination of the death scene, and review of the clinical history. It is, by definition, a diagnosis of exclusion, which means that you have to eliminate all other causes of death before you call it SIDS. Right now, SIDS occurs at about a rate of, of 0 0.7, 0 0.6 per thousand live births. It depends on where you live. In places like Japan and the Netherlands, they have the lowest reported SIDS rates, and their rates are at less than 0 0.1 per thousand live births. New Zealand is at 0 0.8 per thousand live births, and the U.S. and the U.K. have rates of around 0 0.4 to 0 0.6 per thousand live births. What is thought to actually be the mechanism underlying SIDS? There have been a lot of hypotheses about SIDS. What we think is going on right now, and what the research um, seems to tell us, is that the, the final problem in a in a baby who dies of SIDS is a problem with arousal, how they wake up from sleep, how they wake up in response to not having enough oxygen or not having um, or having too much carbon dioxide or something like that. There are many things where you need to arouse, where you need to wake up from sleep. That's where it appears that the, the issue is. There are some babies that um, seem to have some genetic predisposition to having problems with waking up. And there are actually some gene mutations that have been found in some of these children. There have been some studies done on brainstem neurotransmitters, such as serotonin. And we know that in, in some of these babies that there are problems with serotonin uptake. There are also other things that can contribute to a problem with arousal. We know that if babies are exposed to tobacco smoke in utero, that those babies have more of a problem with arousal. And then if you sleep on your stomach, if you sleep prone, you sleep more deeply as a baby. And when you sleep more deeply, it's more difficult for you to arouse as well. So is the argument now between the prone and the supine sleeping position now largely irrelevant? There's absolutely no argument. You definitely should avoid the prone sleep position because that, that really increases your risk several fold for SIDS. Where more of the controversy is right now is the side position. Um, there's still a lot of people, particularly in the U.S., I'm not so sure about the U.K., but in the U.S. there are a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with the back position, with the supine position, and they think that the side position is maybe a compromise and an intermediate position. And the problem with that is that in recent studies, the risk 
of sleeping on the side is the same statistically as the risk of sleeping on the stomach. The newest recommendations that have come out um, in the U.S. and in many other places is that it should be back sleeping, not even side sleeping, but back sleeping only for every sleep. In the seminar, you talk about the triple risk hypothesis. Can you just explain what this is? The triple risk hypothesis says that there have to be three things that kind of happen at the same time for a baby to die of SIDS. The first thing is that the baby has to have some kind of predisposition, whether that be genetic or physiologic, whether it be a serotonin defect. There's something in the baby that makes this baby predisposed um, to this problem with arousal, let's say. And then you have the baby go through a certain developmental stage where the risk is the most pronounced. And for SIDS, it's in the first six months of life. And then you combine a baby at the right age with this predisposition and you put in another factor, which is some kind of an environmental factor, some kind of stressor that kind of it brings out this predisposition for the baby. And that external factor may be smoking exposure, it may be sleep position, it may be soft bedding. So when you have the three um, things put together, the predisposition, the um, developmental age, and then the external factor, then those kind of um, come together to bring about SIDS. I need just to ask you about this difficult issue, which is the diagnosis of SIDS in another family member. Well, what we know is that siblings of SIDS victims are at increased risk of SIDS. Their risk is probably two to three times the general population. The problem is that there are metabolic and genetic disorders, um, such as fatty acid oxidation disorders, such as prolonged QT syndrome, things like that, that might go unrecognized or undiagnosed in a baby who has died. And so that baby may have been labeled, that death may have been labeled as a SIDS death. And then if a sibling dies, and then then that may be called a multiple SIDS occurrence. Probably many of these cases of multiple recurrence of SIDS in a single family are indeed metabolic or genetic problems. Homicide is always a possibility, but you have to remember that a sudden infant death in a subsequent sibling is, according to the data, six times more likely to be from SIDS than from homicide. So I think the important thing to, to get from this is that siblings of SIDS victims are at increased risk for SIDS. But again, SIDS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to do the autopsy. You have to do the death scene investigation. You have to do review of medical history um, to be sure that it isn't something else before you can say that it's SIDS and before you can say it's multiple SIDS in one family. And finally, Dr. Moon, in the seminar, there's a very helpful panel. It's like a guideline, really, for avoiding the major risk factors for SIDS. Well, the first and most important thing is that baby should be placed to sleep in a supine position. That means on the back um, for every sleep. They should be on a firm sleep surface with um, no soft or loose bedding, no soft objects in the crib. There should be no smoke exposure during pregnancy or um, when the baby is an infant. And what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends is that the babies sleep in a separate but proximate sleep environment. So meaning that the baby should be room sharing, sleeping in the same room with the parents, but on a separate sleep surface such as a crib or a bassinet. Consider offering a pacifier at um, nap time and bedtime. There's 
epidemiologic evidence that pacifiers seem to be protective against SIDS. And um, the pacifier should be used when the baby is um, placed or asleep. It doesn't need to be reinserted once the baby falls asleep because even if it falls asleep, somehow the the fact that they fell asleep with a pacifier in the mouth is, is still protective. If the baby is breastfed, the introduction of the pacifier should be delayed until the baby is at least a month of age so that breastfeeding can be established. Um, and then if the baby refuses a pacifier, you shouldn't force it. Other things are, are that you should avoid overheating. Um, you should avoid commercial devices that are marketed to reduce the risk of SIDGE, such as wedges and positioners and special mattresses, because there's no evidence that they do reduce the risk of SIDS. Home monitors, there's no evidence that they reduce the risk of SIDS either. And then the last thing is that when babies are awake and being observed, that they should spend some time playing on their bellies. So we recommend tummy time. That's what we call it here in the U.S. This helps with motor development, and it also helps to decrease the pressure that's placed to the back of the head. One of the issues in the U.S. is that some of these babies will develop flattening of the back of the head, which can be upsetting to parents. So to have tummy time, give the baby some time so that um, in, the, in the prone position or in an upright position while they're awake to decrease the pressure on the back of the head to try to reduce that. Dr. Rachel Moon, one of the authors of the seminar this week about sudden infant death syndrome, concluding this week's podcast. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.